Right now, though, it might be kind of difficult to think about sitting on a patio when you look out your window and see the smoky skies, but eventually the smoke will clear and the vote is taking place today in Vancouver on extending the temporary patio program, something that many restaurant owners say was the lifesaver as far as getting people back into their restaurants and doing so in a safe way. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Sean Layton, a co-owner at Como Teperia, and Sean is with us on the line right now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Uh, um, thanks for having me on. How are things going? We're now mid-September. How are things going with the restaurant? Uh, things are going, you know, all things aside, um, as good as they can be. Um, you know, we're only open five days a week. We're usually open seven. Um, inside, we can only seat with distancing. We're allowed to have 100%, but literally probably about 60% inside is uh, as much as we can get that's safe. Um, so, you know, with the patio, um, that makes uh, for a, for a still a decent um, summer, but, you know, nothing like it was last year. But we're happy that, um, you know, we have our guests back. Everyone is safe and uh, the, av- the availability of outside dining and, you know, the staff are all back at work. So, yeah, I uh, can't really complain. Uh, so what would happen then if you were told that the patio program was going to end as planned next month, that it was that it, if it wasn't extended? Um, yeah, well, if it wasn't extended, you know, we'd still um, do our best to try and um, seat the inside of the restaurant. But for a restaurant to only go at 60% these days with the rents and taxes and everything you have to pay in a city like Vancouver, we're losing money. So um, it would be really hard um, to make it work. And it's also, it's really hard in, you know, Vancouver, a small city, and um, it's still hard to get people out at different times. And everyone generally still wants to eat between six and eight o'clock. So when you only have 35 seats inside, um, that makes it really, really hard to keep all, you know, everybody employed and keep the business um, profitable without losing money. Will you need to do anything if it is extended and you're able to keep the patio open? Will you have to invest in heaters, tents or anything to keep it as we get into the rainy or colder weather? Yeah, so we've already started to look into that. Um, I've already seen that a lot of heaters are starting to be sold out. Um, Regardless, um, even if we didn't get heaters or weren't allowed heaters, um, I think, you know, we still could use the outside seating for people that are waiting to come inside. Um, Like I said, you know, usually um, your typical diners want to eat all around the same time. So if you can provide an area where they can even have snacks and drinks outside if it isn't heated, um, people are pretty, you know, they're troopers. They'll, they'll hang out outside for a little bit if they can get a little bit of food and drink while they're waiting to come inside. So even if we don't get heaters or can't have heaters, um, it still will um, be a nice uh, revenue booster for us. Uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right when you talk about people being troopers, because even pre-pandemic in Vancouver on a cold uh, December day, you would see people sitting at patios, even if they weren't open, just to sitting down, taking a break, maybe exactly that, waiting. And people didn't seem to mind sitting outside if you were dressed for the cold. Yeah, 100%. And it's also, you know, there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, have uh, the maybe some um, underlying health issues and they have to eat outside. And so... If that means, you know, putting on a hoodie and maybe getting a little bit of sideways rain, that's okay. Um, and, and in the past, you know, um, I've sat on patios in October and November, and I've got no problem with it. And now that if that's a lifeline for restaurants, uh, I don't see why there'd be any votes against it. I, I'd like to actually be curious what the, um, what the cons are to this, um, you know, proposal. 
Yeah, and I think that's what people would agree with in that it, it, it should have probably been done years ago. It shouldn't have taken a pandemic to open this up. Uh, even talking with people anecdotally, because it's not really a Vancouver thing when you see some of the patios that have taken the parking spots and the traffic is whizzing by you right as you sit in those <laughs> seats. But people seem to have gotten used to it. And, and they're saying, well, I sat in a place like this in Italy. I've sat in other cities where you do this and you kind of get used to having the traffic right there. Yeah, you know, it's like um, like for a Como, we're a Spanish restaurant, and you know, we've been to I've been to Spain probably about six times in the last three or four years, and that's everywhere in Europe is like that all the time. So it's it's kind of like you know we have to give a hand to all our city councillors that push for this because we feel like we're getting all grown up, and you know we're we're becoming a metropolitan city where you can you know you can hang out outside on a tiny little sidewalk and have a glass of wine without someone you know, looking at you like you're breaking the law, um, you know, it, it, and it's also like adds culture to neighborhoods where, you know, at, at the bottom of a glass building that's brand new, there's not much outside of us and a lot of people don't even know we're there. And now we've got this vibrant patio in this vibrant neighborhood. There's people outside. It really contributes to the neighborhood and to the city. So I think that, um, you know, it, it's been great for Vancouver and I've seen some really cool things that people have done outdoors. And I think it hopefully can, continues to happen. Have there been any downsides that you know of? Not really. Like our patio is literally three tables and we have two wine barrels. So um, I have heard of maybe some neighborhoods where patios might be overcrowding. Um, most of these patios are tiny and they're distanced. And even if they are a little tight together, you're still outdoors. So um, other than maybe some of these patios around the city not being responsible with some of the restaurants, which I think as far as I've seen they have been, um, I see absolutely no downside to it other than the smoke today and the last few days. But, you know, I've been to cities like Mexico City where it's like this every day. So um, can't complain too much. Do you find, though, that do servers, and maybe not so much in your establishment because it's uh, it's not one of the larger ones, but I know there were some concerns about people not taking the rules seriously, the servers and the owners of the restaurants having to become the police of six people per table, no table hopping. Are, do you Do you see that happening? Uh, I've seen uh, I've seen a little bit of that. Um, luckily, you know we have a great client base, um, and we haven't had any real issues in house. Um, but I have heard that around town, and that really sucks. And you know the restaurants can only do so much to police the people. It's already stressful enough policing people in a restaurant. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I have heard some nightmare stories, and you know that just means you know the I think it's just as much on the customers as it is the operators. And especially coming into flu season, and there is going to be a lot more people indoor. Um, you know, it's just as important for everyone to, you know, wash their hands and stay sanitized and try not to go and hug the people at the table next to you. And I know you see people and you might want to wave at them, but just keep in mind that, you know, you should keep your distance. All right. Uh, you mentioned some people still don't know where you are located. You were kind enough to come on the show today. So uh, give people, I know you're at East 7th, is it? Where exactly yeah, can people on, find we're you? Corner of, uh, we're on the corner of Main and 7th, right in Mount Pleasant. Um, yeah, we're open right now, uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Um, on the weekends, we open at two and on the weekdays, we open at four. Um, and we, yeah, we have a really cool happy hour, um, from four to five every day and from two to five on the weekends where you get, just like in Spain, every time you buy a drink, you get a free tapa. Hmm. Uh, pretty cool. It's really fun. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the restaurant, we're very, um, traditional yet modern, um, Spanish restaurant. You can follow us on Instagram, um, at Como Taparia. That's C-O-M-O-T-A-P-E-R-I-A. 
All right. Sounds uh, great. And we'll continue following uh, to see what happens at Vancouver City Council. Sean, thank you so much. Fingers crossed. Yeah, thank you very much. (laughs) Well, as you heard in the news, a public health order means BC physicians and nurses and nurses can be added to the group that is already able to prescribe safer drug alternatives. That and other healthcare professionals will be able to do that to help battle the overdose crisis. As we know, the number of overdose deaths has been growing during this pandemic. So what will this actually look like? Well, joining me to talk more about that right now is Michael Sandler, Executive Director of the Nurse and Nurse Practitioners of BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, We heard from the Nurses Union. They were a bit surprised, but uh, saying that they welcome the news, that this is a good step forward. What do you think this will actually do as far as getting safer drug alternatives to people? Yeah, Jill, I have to uh, I have to applaud the uh, Minister of Health, uh, Minister Darcy, as well as uh, Minister Dix. Um, I think this work is uh, badly needed, and it will make a big difference in a health crisis uh, that is taking, on average, about four British Columbian citizens a day. So we uh, stand um, and applaud the work being done uh, to uh, move forward with uh, protecting British Columbians. Uh, when you say the numbers, though, so how does that, how will that work out in that if we have somebody who's at a high risk of overdose uh, because they're getting drugs that are laced with fentanyl or, or other drugs that are fatal, how will upping the number of people who can prescribe something else, unless someone comes seeking something else, how will they access those safer, safer alternatives? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great question, Jill. Um, so nurses really are at the point of care uh, throughout the province. Uh, we're the uh, most um, kind of ubiquitous healthcare professional available. Uh, we are uh, the primary care provider for a significant number of marginalized and at-risk um, uh, individuals. And so we are the healthcare provider uh, that these individuals see. And so by providing the opportunity to uh, work to top of scope and uh, prescribe medications that are safe uh, and reduce harm, um, the opportunity is uh, expanded exponentially. So it's not just um, a primary care provider uh, that you would find in a physician's office, for example, um, but there it looks like there'll be opportunities uh, to actually bring this uh, to the point of care where the patients are at. And so that will um, uh, go a long way in expanding the harm reduction that nurses can provide uh, to clients out in the community and uh, hopefully uh, will help uh, to reduce uh, the carnage that's, uh, that's happening with this, uh, with this crisis. And so will it mean then that nurses, uh, like you said, are in so many cases are, are the frontline workers, maybe the first point of health care? A nurse can then give a prescription for an alternative, but will the person then have to go to a pharmacy or have to go to another location or to get that prescription filled? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I th- we're still working on the details in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of implementation. Um, but uh, ultimately, uh, one of the pieces uh, that have been envisioned by the, uh, both Minister Darcy and Minister Dix is to increase the number of locations where uh, those prescriptions can be filled, including community pharmacies as well as hospitals. Uh, so recognizing that uh, reducing barriers to access is a huge part of um, the harm reduction piece associated with this. Uh, it's not necessarily um, just ensuring that uh, the appropriate healthcare provider can provide the appropriate intervention, but obviously, you know, as you noted, there has to be an access point uh, for that intervention to be uh, fully implemented. 
Do you see this as an opportunity as well in that if a nurse is now able to prescribe a safer alternative, does that in some cases open up the conversation about treatment? While we talk about harm reduction, is it also a way rather than sending somebody to another health care, whether it's a doctor or having to send somebody elsewhere, if the nurse is able to do that right there, does that also, do you think, make it more likely in some cases people will seek treatment? I, I'm not an expert in that area, but I will say this, um, Jill, that uh, uh, the ability to not have to uh, refer to a nurse practitioner uh, or a primary care provider um, and to be able to have that conversation with that patient uh, where they're at at that moment um, uh, and the fact that uh, these nurses are expert clinicians uh, as it relates to mental health and substance use um, will, I, in, my, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, uh, provide for the opportunity for those conversations to be had in a more organic, uh, in a more organic form, and I would suspect that they would lead to um, better outcomes uh, over the long term. But we would have to ask, uh, we'd have to ask the experts, uh, specifically in uh, Minister uh, Darcy's um, uh, portfolio, um, if that is in fact the case. But there are lots of great research studies underway. Crosstown Clinic is one. Uh, you know, the, um, Tess Coker is doing some PhD work around uh, access as well. And so, you know, I, I think those questions will be answered. I'm just unfortunately not in a position to be able to answer that today for you. No, that's that's quite all right. It's a, it's a new order. So I know we're still uh, figuring out exactly what it means. Uh, the, it did include, though, saying that there will be training and education that go along with these uh, new responsibilities or with these new, uh, the, the, the fact that nurses can now do this. Uh, do you think that's, is that already underway or, or will that be a big uh, obstacle as far as making sure everything's in place with training and education? Yeah, so my understanding is that um, the ministry has partnered uh, with the college, uh, the regulator, uh, that regulates nurses in the interest of public safety, uh, as well as uh, BCCSU um, to provide robust training uh, and oversight, uh, and that both of those organizations are uh, continuing to look at uh, the solution and you know, implement uh, uh, implement pieces that will allow for uh, this to be done safely um, and in a stepwise fashion. So we're uh, excited to continue to work with uh, all of the organizations involved to ensure that, you know, this tool is available as soon as possible. We're, we, we feel strongly that it will help uh, a lot. Does it go into effect immediately then, or, or will there be a lead up until this will actually be happening? I suspect that there will be a lead up. You know, I'm not in a position to comment on um, uh, the lead time that uh, both um, you know the health authorities or the regulator will require to finally get all of the all of the pieces in place. Um, but I know that everyone's working really diligently, uh, and that um, you know Minister Darcy in particular has uh, kind of added this sense of urgency around the fact that, you know, uh, we need to get uh, to a solution as quickly as possible, um, uh, given uh, the, the, the numbers, which are just staggering. So uh, we stand ready to support uh, moving that process forward in any way that is uh, possible. All right, uh, Michael, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jill. Take care. Well, the United States and Canada very likely will extend the border restrictions. Uh, word is it will be at least until the end of November, probably longer than that, as we see COVID-19 cases spiking in some states and that border closure probably not going to be lifted anytime soon. So what does that mean as far as travel back and forth? There are still exemptions that people can travel by air. Let's bring in Len Saunders. He is an attorney, a Blaine, uh, Washington immigration attorney. Len, thanks so much for being back on the show. 
No problem. How are you, Jill? I'm very well. How about you? Not too bad. How are things in Blaine? Uh, very quiet still. So it's kind of the same old, um, you know, border closure. Everyone's waiting for it to open up again so we can get back to normal business. Uh, so I would imagine not a huge surprise that there are sources saying it's going to be at least until American Thanksgiving. You know, I'm not surprised. I started saying a number of months ago that they really need, the Canadian government and the American governments really need to give people more of a realistic timeline here. And just doing this 30-day closure, extending it, I think this is like the sixth time that they've looked at extending it. And people need to go about their lives and make plans. And I was saying over the summertime, if they're going to keep it closed for the foreseeable future, make a date like January 1st, something that's more realistic. Because people keep calling me saying, well, it's going to open up in 30 days. I'm like, that's just when the current closure ends and they're going to extend it again. So I'm not surprised that they're now talking about the end of November. Realistically, I honestly don't see it opening until early in the new year. And when you hear from people that are concerned or that are hoping or banking on a reopening, what are the main reasons that people are wanting that? Well, in Blaine here, it's for business purposes. You know, all of the gas stations, the mailbox places, they want all of the Canadian customers to come down. But for for the Canadians, people want to be able to travel down here. They want to come down for the winter time and you know bring their RVs down. So a lot of these retirees are now trying to figure out they they know they can fly but they can't bring their their vehicles and so they're making plans on having third parties bring their vehicles down. People are talking about vacations uh over the holidays and so these are the questions I'm getting from Canadians who want to travel to the U.S., and the big concern is they can't drive. Everybody knows they can fly down, but that's just not convenient for everyone. And do you think there should be some kind of exemption then, especially if you are one of those Canadians in that scenario, if you have property in the States, that if you were going to drive down and quarantine and have insurance, that you should be able to do that? You know, I, I've I've been really surprised that the Americans have not made an exemption, especially for people who have properties in Point Roberts or properties in Whatcom County, where I am, in Blaine and Birch Bay. I understand not allowing shoppers to come down to get gas or groceries or pick up their packages. But if somebody has property down here um, and they don't want to fly and have to backtrack uh, from Seattle, I think there should be some exemptions, and there really isn't any from the Americans. The Canadian government has made an exemption for spouses, uh, but you haven't seen kind of a mirror image. And I think the main reason is because the Americans, and they'll tell you this, if you try to cross at the land border and get denied, they'll just say, go to the airport and you'll have no problems. Mm-hmm. So it's because of that kind of loophole, it's, it's prevented a lot of Canadians from driving down and accessing their properties or being able to go vacationing in their vehicles, more, you know, which would be more convenient. Uh, it also seems too when we look at the we we tend to look at Washington numbers. We look at the entire state, and where you are in Blaine, uh, I'm guessing, isn't where the high numbers are. It's really focused around Seattle or the higher populated areas. Well, absolutely. You take Point Roberts. I don't think they've had a single case ever. But you look at Seattle, and you see numbers in the thousands. So you know there. Ha- 
even though there's consistency in, in, in keeping the border closed, I think the governments, if they're going to continue this border closure into the new year, they really need to look at some exemptions here. But nobody seems to be making any any efforts to do that. None of the politicians, in my opinion, fully understand not the inconveniences, but just the problems that they've created by having this really, um, you know, the border closed with no exemptions for people going back and forth, unless they're essential workers. But that's very few and far between. What would happen then, do you think, this might be out of your realm, but just to, if somebody had a property, even if they had a property in Blaine, or we've, we've seen this, uh, we talked to the guy whose boat was there, and he flew to Seattle, drove uh, to, to Blaine, brought the boat back and quarantined. But what if somebody had a property that was flooded or damaged or they needed to get there for that reason? My experience is the Americans will say to you, find someone else to look after your property. They won't allow you in for any sort of emergencies like that. If you have a death in the family or you're coming down for some sort of emergency medical care, possibly, but there really aren't many exemptions because of that flying. And it's interesting, like when you look at it logically, if you allow a Canadian to cross over to check on their property in Port Roberts and cross back again, there's very limited exposure to coronavirus versus flying to Seattle, getting a bus, let's say, up to Blaine or a taxi, and then taking a boat or flying over to Port Roberts. You look at the exposure that that person may be subject to when they could have just easily crossed over the border. There just seems to be a real lack of common sense on both sides of the border from both governments and looking at these exemptions. Uh, Do you think it's just easier to leave it that uh, truckers can get through so that the goods are still flowing? Uh, Like you said, essential workers are still getting through. It's just easier to leave it at that rather than dealing with trying to work out exemptions? Well, exactly. And I think that's why you haven't seen exemptions, because they don't want to make you know an exception for one situation and then have everyone flood in and say, well, my friend got in. Why can't I get in? And so it's a really harsh. Like I've told people, Canadians, you're not going to get in. And they try and they call me back and they go, you're right. I'm like, exactly, because I hear these stories going both ways. Americans getting denied into Canada, Canadians getting denied coming into the U.S. And I honestly, I think this is continue, This is going to continue with this exact same situation at least until early next year. And people are going to have to plan accordingly, whether it's winterizing their property in Whatcom County or over in Point Roberts or making plans on going maybe to, Hawaii, to uh, Mexico, then Hawaii, or maybe not you know, snowbirding down to the southern states. And so people have to look forward and plan accordingly with this border closure. Uh, what's happening or have you been at Peace Arch Park at all lately? I'm there almost every single day. I've been very lucky because, you know, I used to come and meet clients uh, in Canada who were inadmissible to the U.S. Now I meet them at the Peace Arch Park. So I'm there. I'll be there in a couple hours meeting a few clients. It's busy. Now, is it packed? No, people social distance. Unfortunately, the B.C. government has made it very inconvenient for Canadians because they're all parking in residential areas versus the Peace Arch Park, which is closed. And they're all having to funnel over Zero Avenue, crossing the ditch. But it's still open. The Americans have been very good on the, uh, on the American side at the state park, making sure people social distance and that it's not too overcrowded. So it's been a very convenient place. And it's not just for people in the lower mainland. 
people are traveling from all over Canada and the U.S. to see family members, to see spouses. Every day I'm there, there's weddings. There's multiple weddings a day. So it's a very, very convenient location for many Canadians and Americans to meet. And I was going to ask you that because I was hearing as well uh, about the the continued weddings, which also goes back to uh, probably not the most pressing issue. But if people had a better idea, is it January? Is it going to be six more months? Uh, You might not see people rushing in and doing that. Oh, absolutely. Because people see that there's no end in sight. And they can't make plans, and so they're now getting married at the Peace Arch Park. Quite often the Americans literally drive down to Bellingham, register their marriage license, and then drive straight north, and they come in as an exempt family member. Um, I'd be interested to know in in Whatcom County, where everyone's getting their marriage licenses, there must be like a 500% increase in marriage licenses being issued, because I honestly get about a half dozen calls a day from people all over both countries asking how you get married at the park and which side and where you get your marriage license. It's a busy place for marriages right now. All right. Well, Len, we'll leave it there for today. Always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. So I just did a little dive back into my email because I was curious as to when I first did a story about strata insurance costs going through the roof. And the earliest one I can find is January 2nd, January 2nd, 2020. It was obviously happening before that, but that was the day I was able to go and interview a strata council president in Langley. And I will remember that day because the building was almost brand new, maybe a year old, two years old. It had had no claims on it and they were seeing huge increases going from, well, just absolutely huge increases in their insurance. After we did that story, more people came forward with similar stories saying, we haven't made any claims either. Our building is new. Why is this happening? And that's what really started people talking about this more and calling for change. Well, yesterday on the program, we talked a little bit about some of the measures that have been brought in to try and ease those huge cost hikes when it comes to insurance for strata corporations. But my next guest says... It is not enough, and it will not actually help those who need it the most. Todd Stone joins me now, the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson, also the critic for Municipal Affairs. Thanks so much for being with us. It's good to be with you, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on what's happening? What are you hearing from people that are facing these huge increases for insurance? Well, as you've uh, just indicated, we have been hearing for well over a year now uh, of astronomical increases in in strata insurance costs, and that's flowing through to uh, result in higher premiums, uh, higher uh, deductibles, and uh, you know a dramatic increase in monthly fees or one-time uh, uh, strata assessments that many people are facing. I have one and a half million British Columbians now live in some form of a strata. So we first started profiling this issue uh, late in 2019, and uh, we brought in a private members bill early in 2020. Uh, we have uh, suggested over a dozen ideas that the government could pursue, uh, uh, many of which that would be focused on leaving money in people's pockets today and help people uh, grab with these skyrocketing strata insurance costs. Unfortunately, the, the government's plan to this point, uh, including the, the three measures that were announced on the weekend, uh, are, are measures that are just not going to make any difference in the here and now uh, in terms of, of, of just the, the significant financial distress that people are facing. Uh, so more needs to be done and, and much more quickly. So what would you do? What do you think could be done that would help? 
Well, uh, I'll give you a, a few of the ideas that we've proposed. Uh, we, we believe that the practice, uh, as it's known, uh, of best terms pricing uh, that's uh, used by insurance companies needs to, to be banned in British Columbia. Uh, what that in, uh, essentially involves is uh, often on a premium, uh, on, on a, often on a, a policy, there's multiple insurance companies. There can be sometimes 12, 15, 20 companies that all come together to provide the required 100% coverage on a policy. Uh, the, the, the rate that is charged, the premium that's charged, is based on the highest quote of all participating insurance companies. And so uh, you don't get an average of those quotes. You don't, you don't go with the, uh, the lowest. Uh, you go with the highest. And, and so what we're seeing is uh, because there's fewer players in, in the market at the moment, uh, that one final insurance company comes into the mix and they, uh, they put a, a much higher quote on the table. That drives up the overall uh, premium for that particular policy. So that, we think, should be banned. Uh, we've also uh, called for uh, a tax holiday or, or you know, just forego collecting the 4.4% uh, insurance premium tax that generates about 13 million dollars per year for uh, for government revenues let's leave those dollars in the in the pockets of uh, strata owners uh, we've suggested an extension of the tax, uh, the property tax deferment program that would help people in significant financial distress as a result of, of this issue. Uh, the creation of a water damage prevention program so that stratas can invest in, in uh, necessary upgrades to prevent significant water damage events from happening in the first place. So lots that can be done that would actually make a difference today uh, with people's pocketbooks. Uh, but for some reason, the government has proposed a, a number of measures uh, which are really just about tinkering around, tinkering around the edges and, and, and might have some, you know, some benefits a year, five, ten years from now. Uh, what about the idea that's been put forward, some saying that if you opened up insurance so that insurance companies could bundle, say, car insurance as well as home insurance and offer more products, they might be more enticed to even offer the insurance for condos because a lot of companies won't even go into that market. Well, and, and that's a very good point. And we've called for uh, choice in auto insurance. Uh, and certainly, uh, I think it's a very worthy discussion to have about uh, uh, how you could uh, you could open up by opening up the, the automotive uh, insurance market on, uh, to the private side, uh, per, allow for competition there, and how that could then result in, in the bundling of, of auto and home insurance products uh, that, that would likely have a positive impact for, for consumers. That's a very good idea worthy of pursuing. Uh, and Jill, we've also proposed... Uh, that the government look at uh, implementing a self-insurance uh, option uh, for strata insurance in British Columbia. Uh, it's called captive insurance, but essentially it would mean instead of sending off uh, a uh, $150,000 check for your annual premium to uh, you know New York or Zurich to some international uh, insurance company's headquarters, you would you would keep that money and you'd put it into a fund and you'd build that fund up over a, a you know two, three, four, five-year period. Uh, and insure yourself. Uh, BC Ferries uh, has a self-insurance model. The Municipal Finance Authority has a self-insurance model. Uh, these work very, very well. Will require some government leadership and, and some government uh, uh, dollars up front uh, to bridge that, that initial two or three year period. Uh, but we think this would, would also give consumers uh, much greater choice and at the end of the day, lower uh, strata insurance costs. Uh, how would that help, though, or would that help? Because a lot of, of people are saying that it's the one thing to get the insurance for the building, and once it's secured, in many cases, they are paying more in strata fees or paying for that, but it's also the deductibles. And then if you are somebody that your unit, you cause the damage to the, the rest of the building, you suddenly have to have insurance to cover these huge deductibles. Well, and, and here, there, therein lies the problem. Uh, the, the current 
reality and landscape in British Columbia and the strata insurance world uh, in terms of how the rates, the, the premiums and the deductibles are calculated uh, do not uh, relate to, uh, to, to reality of what's actually happening from a risk perspective. I mean, we, we are uh, hearing from countless stratas and strata owners. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a, a new building uh, that's been around for two or three years that has zero claims history. It doesn't matter if it's a townhouse. It doesn't matter if it's a bare land strata, which is a, essentially a, a single detached home um, the, the, where the risk profile of damage water events from one unit to another just doesn't exist. Uh, everyone's insurance is going through the roof. So what we're saying is, is uh, provide more choices for consumers here, open up the, uh, the market, bring in uh, uh, this self-insurance model, uh, which again, works really well in, uh, in, in the municipal world and uh, in, in a number of other uh, sectors in British Columbia. And uh, we're confident that uh, you know, a combination of these, these different measures will actually uh, leave money in people's pockets when it comes to their strata insurance costs. But not everybody's is going through the roof. I've heard tons of stories like you have as well of people that are having that 100. Uh, Tony Giovanto yesterday talked about somebody who had a 400 percent increase. Uh, but I've also heard from people who are relieved saying, oh, it's great. Ours only went up 10 percent. Ours went up 12 percent. It wasn't that bad. So why are we having such a discrepancy? Uh, it, your, your guess is as good as mine, Jill. Uh, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. I'm up in Kamloops right now. We don't exactly have a, an, earthca- a, a, an earthquake threat here. Uh, we don't have uh, significant, uh, um, uh, you know, flood uh, flood type events here. Uh, we, uh, uh, we we do have some, you know, the wildfire, uh, you know, threats uh, uh, from summer to summer. But uh, the the fact that you can have a condo building here in Kamloops that's uh, that's two or three years old that has had a 300% year over year increase in their in their costs. Uh, insurance costs with no no claims uh, on the books, and then right across the street there's a, a, another building. It was built by the same uh, builder a year earlier, uh, so it's a year older. Uh, their insurance only went up by by 30 percent this year. Uh, same number of units, again no claims history. It makes no sense whatsoever, and I think that's part of the challenge here. Not only are uh, our rates uh, going up and they're, they're highly unpredictable, uh, but uh, it, it, there's no rational explanation. And, and this points to another thing we've been calling on the government to do, and that is uh, the insurance companies uh, should be required by law as a matter of, of regular uh, course of doing business to provide uh, a transparent public information for consumers to see uh, how they actually arrive at the numbers they arrive at. Right now, it's all done uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the cloak of darkness. Uh, there's no transparency there. We think all of that should be out in the open so people can see. Uh, why, why am I facing a 40% increase this year or, in some cases, a 300 500% increase year over year? Uh, I want to know, you know how you arrive at those numbers. For some reason, the, the NDP uh, haven't wanted to embrace that idea either. Although we do hear from the insurance companies that when we're talking about different areas, and you raise the point of Kamloops not being in an earthquake zone, uh, we've heard from people in Richmond where because that is in an earthquake zone that would suffer a lot of damage with a huge earthquake, they're more at risk. Uh, we've heard insurance companies say it's because of climate change and huge disasters around the world that their, inc- their costs have gone up and that they're passing those costs on to everybody. Well, and, and uh, that, that may be true to some extent, uh, but we're supposed to, to sit here, uh, and if you have a 30% increase in your premium year over year, you're supposed to feel good about that, Jill. I mean, just th- think of how absurd that, that, that sounds. 
um, insurance companies want us to actually feel good about a 30% increase year over year because it's not 100 or 300%. Um, of course, there are risks. Of course, those risks have to be assessed and factored into the overall risk profile of a particular property. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it is pretty hard to figure out, uh, you know, rationally how uh, some of these costs that are being faced by by thousands of, of owners. I mean, good on you if you're only facing a 10 or 15% increase um, uh, this year. The vast majority of stratas out there and strata owners are facing increases much, much greater than that. And so, you know, irrespective of whatever the macro world events are that might be uh, partly contributing to that, the government of British Columbia has some levers at their disposal that they could that they could use today to, to help uh, address the financial distress that British Columbians are facing. Um, waive the 4.4% uh, uh, insurance premium tax for a couple of years, um, which, by the way, the, the total tax collected by the BC government is, is going up exponentially year over year because the total dollar value of premiums is going up so much. Uh, the government's actually, in some respects, um, you know, re- realizing a windfall um, on this insurance tax. Leave, leave, leave that tax in the pockets of, uh, of strata owners. That would, that would be a start. It would be a way of you know, helping people out here and now. Um, we, people need some, need some help, and they're just not getting it at, uh, at the moment from the current government. All right, Todd Stone, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. Have a good week. Well, if someone was to ask you, uh, what do you think a Viking looked like? You might have an image of a fearsome warrior, probably blonde from Scandinavia, cruising around in a longboat, carrying out raids. But apparently we have oversimplified our images and what we think of when we think about Vikings. And this is all thanks to some new research and some new technology. And SFU archaeology professor Mark Collard was part of that and joins me now to talk a bit more about it. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. Uh, This is some pretty uh, interesting research, taking a look at Vikings and perhaps uh, changing the way we might uh, visualize a Viking if someone says the word. Uh, Walk us through, how did this even begin? Oh, it's a a project that's taken uh, several years to come together, to come to fruition. Um, It's a huge undertaking. The the paper has uh, 90 different authors. And it's, it's a project that's been driven by uh, Eskiv Willislev from uh, the universities of, of Cambridge and, and Copenhagen and uh, has been uh, he, one of his PhD students, uh, Ashot Malga Ryan, has, has been the, the sort of uh, the lead uh, in terms of data collection. So basically, it's a, it's a huge long term project. Uh, so many years in the making, uh, from what I understand, too, this takes a look at the DNA uh, from the remains of is it more than 440 men, women and children. How did uh, the researchers, uh, including yourself, how did you even get access to all the DNA? Well, so it's, it's a case of going to different museums, um, requesting permission, collaborating with um, your museum curators and other people who are in charge of, of the materials. Mm-hmm. And then um, extracting samples uh, from the, the skull or, or, or from the teeth uh, to, to analyze backing. All the, all the analysis was, was done in Copenhagen. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that, and, and uh, the fact that when you say Viking to somebody, they probably have a specific picture in their mind, uh, would think Scandinavia. But this research points elsewhere. Well, I mean, it points to a great deal 
of of complexity. So our sort of standard way of thinking about the Vikings is as a sort of uh, as a people, as a sort of biological group. Um, and in fact, if we go back not that many decades, you'd find people talking about the Nordic race. Um, archaeologists and historians have been uh, pushing back against that picture for a while now. And this study uh, with the um, the DNA, uh, the amount of DNA we've got here, uh, the amount of individuals we've got to analyse, really supports the, the, the notion that um, we, we're not looking at a, a single group of people when we're looking at the Vikings. So it's a, it's a term that we apply uh, in, in some ways incorrectly. So as I say, we're not really looking at a biologically distinct group of people here. What we find with the, the DNA data is there's not only differentiation amongst the Vikings, so we can see you know, pretty clear genetic differences between um, populations in uh, Denmark and uh, Sweden and Norway. Um, so there's differentiation amongst those populations in the Viking Age. And also we see evidence for interbreeding with, uh, with other groups. So it's pretty clear from the data that we've got um, people moving into the, uh, the Viking area, into Scandinavia, that region from different parts of, of Europe. Uh, in particular, we've got evidence from uh, people moving in from Britain um, and then uh, people coming in from from southern Europe as well. So quite a, a, a dispersed um, group of people moving in. Um, and then, you know, in, in other cases where we have um, uh, done analyses on, uh, there's a, uh, for example, there's a, uh, a couple of graves in the Orkney Islands in Scotland that are uh, culturally uh, Viking. So they're Scandinavian. They appear to be Scandinavian on the basis of the, the the way the individuals are buried and what they're buried with. But when we look at the DNA, they look like uh, local Scottish people. So clearly being a, a Viking was a cultural identity rather than a you know biological identity. So it really sort of um, supports this sort of long-term uh, effort on the part of historians and archaeologists to, to sort of challenge the notion that um, the Vikings were, were sort of a, a single people. It also has some really interesting findings uh, when uh, talking about uh, the the families, uh, brothers, cousins, and just uh, how uh, relatives, uh, the different areas where relatives were found. Yeah, I, I mean, that's for me, there's, there's so much in this study is, you know, it, there's, there's multiple really interesting different findings, some sort of big scale ones, and then some like the one you're referring to, small scale ones. And for me, those ones are really sort of stand out as, as exciting because they're, you know, we're identifying, for example, in, in one case, um, we looked at a, a boat burial in Estonia where there are tens of different individuals buried. And amongst those, we managed to identify four uh, brothers, which tells us something really interesting about the composition of Viking raiding parties. And in another case, um, we found uh, evidence of cousins who are, you know, hundreds of kilometres apart in Sweden, 
And then another case, there's um, a second, uh, another pair of of, uh, of individuals who are really quite clearly quite close kin. They're, they're either grandfather and, and grandson or uncle and nephew uh, or half-brothers. So, you know, we're pulling out really fine-grained detail about relationships amongst people. And it's, it's particularly exciting because it's the sort of information you just can't get out of sort of regular archaeological remains or, or regular sort of skeletal analysis, the sort of thing that we've been doing for for years and years and years. They're, they're basically blind to this information. And this new approach, which is still less than sort of 30 years old, this, this um, ancient DNA approach that's, that's been employed here, I mean, the, the level of detail it's able to, to, to pull out of the record I think is tremendously exciting. Well, well, and it points to, to if we didn't have that technology or that ability to do that now, this is information that uh, likely, it seems, would never have been uncovered. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as, as I say, with, with the sort of standard methods that we, we have in terms of looking at, you know, the sort of things that people think about in terms of skeletal analysis and the sort of things that you see on CSI, those those sort of techniques just can't get at this sort of level of detail. They can't tell us about the, you know, the relationships between two individuals, you know, on either side of the North Sea, or, or they're not able to identify, you know, uh, you know, four brothers in a collection of forty odd male skeletons. They just can't do it. So really, you know, the ancient DNA is really bringing a, a whole new lens to bear on these questions about uh, the, the, about human history. And on, a, I suppose, a more superficial note, uh, one of the notes that I saw in this, too, was the discovery uh, that actually a lot of Vikings had brown hair, not blonde hair. Again, kind of going against that image that people might have in their minds. It, it seems remarkable, too, that you're able to get that level of information from DNA that's from so long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's all based on on comparisons with, with living people. So we figured out for a number of different genes, how they uh, relate to different aspects of, of our bodies um, and, and different bodily processes. And we're able to, through the process of comparison, we're able to identify, you know, whether certain individuals, what their, their, their hair color was like. So it, again, it's very, it's a level of detail you just can't get with, with standard archaeological methods. Very interesting research and findings, Mark Collard. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you.